Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Pope Francis is in deep trouble on two fronts this week. Even his admirers privately admit it. On Monday, he announced he was sending a senior archbishop to Chile, from where he's just returned, to investigate allegations that Bishop Juan Barros covered up grotesque sexual abuse. This was just days after Francis in Chile had furiously denounced Barros's accusers and apparently victims, saying there was no evidence of wrongdoing. New facts have come to light, says Rome. Really? Or is the Pope frantically trying to make up for the PR disaster of rounding on widely believed victims in Chile? He has a pattern of defending accused clergy so long as they're loyal to him, say his critics. Also this week, the Vatican's very controversial plans to depose a Chinese bishop from the loyal underground church in favour of an alleged communist puppet seem to be going ahead, despite an anguished plea to the Pope from retired Cardinal Zen of Hong Kong, the great patron and defender of the underground church. Chile and China, it's hard to say which crisis looks worse, because there's a hint of dishonesty as well as incompetence. Canon lawyer Dr Ed Condon joins me to discuss a situation which I know is troubling Catholics on both fronts very deeply indeed. Ed, a priest rang me a couple of days ago and said, I think this could be the beginning of the end for Francis. Is there anything in that? I think it could very quickly turn into the beginning of the end of the wider media love affair with Pope Francis. I think that on issues of sex abuse especially, there's not a lot of mileage for a Pope who has spoken out apparently against victims. And that's a really easy way for a pope or anyone in the church to lose public sympathy very, very quickly. I don't know that it's the beginning of the end of his pontificate or anything like that, but it certainly could be the beginning of the end of what we've seen as universally positive coverage of the pope and everything he says and does. Do you have any idea why Francis stuck to his guns, defending Barros, appointing him a bishop, to this sea in Chile, even after Barris's name had been thoroughly besmirched by these allegations. He was an extremely controversial figure already when the Pope appointed him, saying, it's all calumny. It's in the worst kind of way a mystery. Bishop Barros was, before his appointment to the diocese where he currently is, in Osorno in Chile, he was the Bishop of the Armed Forces. And it was a, you know, it's a fairly minor role in the sort of global context of the church. And the diocese to which he's been appointed is also a pretty small one, even in Chile. Why he was moved at all, why he was moved to that diocese, it's not clear. I, I find it difficult to believe that Pope Francis had a deep personal interest in him as a man. I think this is another example of a catastrophic failure of advice being given to the Pope. And then he's backed into a corner, effectively, and has to double down on a decision that he made with imperfect or even very bad information. Well, Ed, you, you talk about the Pope being wrongly advised, which was a line you took last time. We had a fascinating discussion about him. But let me challenge that, because again and again, in entirely different circumstances, the Pope has defended clerics, including Cardinal Maradiaga, one of his senior lieutenants, who've been accused of really serious 
complicity in child abuse or massive corruption and basically announce they're innocent before he has the evidence. Now, you can't blame all that on one set of advisors. It sounds more like the way Francis operates. And I'm afraid it is rather reminiscent of the portrait of him painted in that very much disputed but best-selling book, The Dictator Pope. It doesn't look good when you put it in that context. I think it's necessary to separate the instance of Cardinal Maradiaga, with whom the Pope has a close personal relationship and a history with, which isn't to downplay in any way the the strength and seriousness of the allegations that were made against him, from Bishop Barros, who I'm not aware the Pope has any particular personal connection to. But you're right, there is there is an atmosphere and a reputation that seems to be building that if you have the Pope's loyalty, you have it absolutely. But I think one thing that you said that is absolutely true and is proving to be a seriously thorny issue for the Pope, particularly around sensitive issues like sexual abuse, is that he pronounces before necessarily seeing all the evidence he should see. And that is something that's particularly true in the Barros case. Now, it's emerged almost, I think it was yesterday, that he's now sending Archbishop Shikluna to investigate. And Archbishop Shikluna is, probably has the most credibility on this subject that anyone can have. He's the former, to use a more accessible term, chief prosecutor in the Vatican for these things. He's a man of incredible integrity. He's handled cases everywhere on this, from you know Scotland to the Vatican, now Chile. I mean, he's the one he should have sent in in the first place. The question that we have to ask is, why is the Pope taking such a strong line defending Bishop Barros if these steps haven't already been taken and they were there to be taken? It's interesting that in, I think it was 2016, Pope Francis issued a document on motu proprio in which he put out a new set of legal mechanisms to accuse, challenge, and try bishops who are accused of negligence or abuse of office or mismanagement, in specifically in relation to child sexual abuse, but it was more open-ended than that. But nothing seems to have been done with that mechanism. It doesn't seem to be being used. Perhaps tellingly, that mechanism was announced three months after the last time Pope Francis made a bit of a PR gaffe in speaking about child sexual abuse. In one of his mid-air press conferences, he spoke about bishops who moved around known or suspected abuser priests as being reckless or irresponsible. And that kicked up a huge uproar. And so the document that he issued in June seems to have been a partial response to that. But again, it's fallen flat in its well, application. I, and I wonder if I could mention a particular bugbear of mine, which is that Cardinal Daniels, former primate of Belgium, was caught red-handed trying to cover up the child abuse committed by a Belgian bishop. He was caught absolutely red-handed, disgraced, and then apparently because he helped get Cardinal Bergoglio elected as Pope, was invited to a synod on the family, of all things. Now, there's no question of disputed evidence in this case. Daniels, as I say, was caught red-handed. There was a recording, in fact. There was indeed. So these raise very serious questions about the Pope's judgment, even if you like the Pope's moral standards on the most sensitive issue imaginable. It's a very terrible thing if that's the public perception of Francis that begins to form. And he needs to really, I think, look hard at what he's doing to follow up the big moves that he makes, particularly around the issue of child sexual abuse. For example, he set up the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. And everyone agreed this was a wonderful thing. It was a big bold, grand move. He had victims of sexual abuse themselves sitting on the council. It was headed by the very credible Cardinal O'Malley from Boston. It was a big move. But both the survivors of abuse that were members of the commission have resigned 
all been removed in fairly acrimonious circumstances, and the entire commission itself lapsed at the end of last year and hasn't been renewed yet. And this is part of, I think, the even more worrying pattern, which is that the Pope was willing to think and act boldly in the first instance, but then nothing is done to make to give it wheels. Another example that comes to mind is he published a document, I think it was in 2015, saying that he wanted a new judicial section for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, specifically to handle issues of sexual abuse and especially when they involved or touched upon bishops and their complicity in it. But that never materialized. It never happened. It simply was dead on arrival. And I think we're seeing a pattern here where the Pope makes a big gesture, but then nothing's done to bring it to life. And that's what we really need to well, see change. One might also mention the question of Vatican finances. Now, huge steps were taken to reform those, and then they fell apart. It's and absolutely. power seems to have returned to the very people who caused the problem in the first place. The, Corrupt the, elements in the curia. Exactly. The, the parallel is almost exact. The Council for the Economy was created. The Independent Office of the Auditor General was created. Cardinal Pell was given enormous powers to pursue real financial transparency and accountability in the Vatican. His authority was systematically eroded. An independent financial audit was cancelled initially through an illegal or non-canonical mechanism. Archbishop Betchew signed a letter cancelling the audit and had to go and have the Pope retroactively approve it because he didn't have the authority to do it. And now we've seen the Auditor General has been removed. It's exactly the same thing. There's big structural reform, but then nothing is done to bring it to life. And I'm really worried that the entire pontificate of Pope Francis, which began with real promise of serious reform where we needed to see institutional reform, is going to end up having very little lasting impact because nothing is done to bring these reforms to life. Well, that Auditor General, Maloney, was removed in what was basically a travesty of justice that reminded me slightly of the way that the Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Muller, was turfed out his term of office not renewed with no notice whatsoever and the Pope apparently only spent a minute talking to him. Well I think the incident of the Auditor General is actually even more worrying because the statement that he gave said basically he was thrown out because he was doing his job too well and the statement issued by the Vatican said that he was removed because he was exceeding his mandate and examining the private financial affairs of senior curial officials. That, which is what he was supposed which is to what be he doing. Which is exactly yes. what he was supposed to do. So in that sense, Cardinal Mueller's term of office lapsed and wasn't renewed, and we have had an interesting conversation about how that could have been handled better or differently. But in the instance of the Auditor General, no matter who you listen to, it seems that he was sacked for doing his job too well. If there is a big picture relating to internal Vatican politics, it seems to be that the most powerful of all the Vatican departments, the Secretariat of State is reasserting control over the machinery of the church. I think that's absolutely true, and it's doing it in the face of Pope Francis and sometimes making him look very, very foolish. We mentioned the incident of Cardinal Maradiaga. An interesting thing that happened was the Pope gave his annual pre-Christmas address to the Roman Curia, in which he specifically addressed the opinion that had been voiced by many people, myself included, that said he was to a great extent being kept in the dark by members of the Curia about how they were conducting business as usual and circumventing his oversight and reforms. And he gave basically a, in terms, he said, I know everything that's going on and there's no old guard styming my reforms. It's a patient work. It's like, I think he said, it's like cleaning the Sphinx with a toothbrush and it's going to take time. Later that day, the Maradiaga allegations came out and I think it was a day or two later, he telephoned Cardinal Maradiaga and according to the Cardinal, he said, I'm so sorry for what they have done to you. They being 
the Curial Old Guard who were trying to stymie, apparently, the work of the C9 Council of Cardinals, of which Cardinal Maradiaga was and remains the head, whose job it is to oversee the restructuring of the Vatican gubernatorial constitution. So the Pope was put in a place where he basically reversed himself within 48 hours, saying there's no Curial Old Guard stymieing reform, and then two days later saying there is one, and they've done it to a good friend of mine. Well... There's an analogy with the situation in China, because let's not forget that the Secretary of State is also the Vatican's diplomatic service, the Vatican's foreign ministry, and it, seemed, it was most certainly Cardinal Parolin, the Secretary of State, who fixed up or approved this deal whereby a faithful bishop of the Chinese underground church was told, resign your see so that we can install somebody who is basically part of the Communist Party apparatus. Now, this has really disturbed faithful Catholics, especially those who've given money to help the underground church. And once again, there's the sense that some sort of complicated struggle is being fought inside the Vatican with terrible consequences for people outside it. We can't be quite clear who wants to go ahead with this deal and who is manipulating whom, but as far as I can see it, the bad guys have won and the chances are that a, effectively a communist spy will become a Catholic bishop. Well, that's the worst possible scenario. I think if we're going to talk about the relationship between the Vatican and the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, I think is its formal yeah. name, the state-approved church, it is infiltrated by and controlled by the Communist Party of China. There's not much question there. That's why it's approved by them. That having been said, it needs to be remembered that, and if you talk to anyone who's done extensive missionary work in China, they will tell you that there are faithful priests and indeed faithful bishops within that structure, faithful to Rome, who do not accept the Communist Party's interference. So negotiating with the Chinese government about the patriotic church in China is a complicated business. And I I would stand back slightly from wanting to guess at the full scope of whatever plan is being proposed. What's not at all in question is that Cardinal Zen and many people who speak from and for the underground church are absolutely opposed to any kind of deal. And it's hard to see how it can be for the common good if the most faithful and the most persecuted Catholics in China are the ones who are getting the raw end of it. Well, Ed, I don't doubt that there are faithful bishops and indeed priests inside the Communist Patriotic Church. But as it turns out, one of the bishops that the Secretary of State wants to install, or certainly the Chinese government do, is Bishop Huang, who was actually publicly excommunicated by Benedict XVI because he had such close ties to the Communist Party. And he was illicitly consecrated a bishop. That was the reason for the public excommunication. I mean, that's that doesn't necessarily put someone beyond the pale for forever. I mean, he canonically stated his situation is exactly the same as those bishops that were consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre in the 80s. And the same people who are appalled at the idea of having a bishop illicitly consecrated for the patriotic church in China coming back into the fold wouldn't necessarily be so appalled at someone from the SSPX coming in. So I think it's important to make that distinction. But that having been said, it's hard to take solace when it's Cardinal Paroline, who's saying everything's under control, we know what we're doing. Cardinal Zen said of Cardinal Paroline last summer, so before this whole thing came to light, he described Cardinal Paroline as a sweet man with a poisoned mind and someone who believed in diplomacy, not the faith. And when you've seen how the Secretary of State has handled a number of things now, whether it's the recent papal trip to Chile or the handling of the Knights of Malta last year, or the restructuring of the Vatican finances, it's hard to have a lot of faith when it's the Secretary of State saying, we've got this in hand. 
Well, one thing China and Chile have in common is that the Pope was, to say the least, very inadequately briefed by the Secretary of State, Cardinal Parolin, who, it is no secret, desperately wants to be the next Pope. I personally hope that this will put an end to his ambitions, but you never know. Well, you never know what's going to happen in a conclave, and you never know when a conclave's going to happen, but I would say that those people who were touting the possibility of a Parolin papacy are probably not going to be doing so anymore, at least for the foreseeable future. Well... That's some small consolation to come out of what I think fundamentally is a personal crisis for Pope Francis. It is, but I think it's in a sense a crisis of his own temperament. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that he has the right instincts in most cases. He thinks bold, but if you're going to affect... I agree. I agree that he has the right instincts in many cases, yes. But what he has not done so far and what he does need to do and still has time to do is follow up his bold thinking. And that means uh, he's a dynamic leader. He's a charismatic leader. He thinks big. He makes big decisions. And I think his instincts are sound. But whether we're talking about the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, whether we're talking about the reforming of how the church handles sex abuse allegations at a juridic level, restructuring the CDF, restructuring the Vatican finances, whatever it may be, being Pope and affecting real change in how the church is governed is a desk job. It requires real minute attention to detail. It requires being absolutely informed on every detail. But that's not Francis. He's a stubborn, short-tempered octogenarian who reads only one newspaper, is advised directly by priests who themselves are barely in touch with what's happening in the media. Well, this the chances a- of him changing his modus operandi seem pretty slim to me. Leaving aside what you said about him being stubborn and quick-tempered, which I don't know myself, but yes. You do know it, Ed. It is certainly true that he only reads one newspaper a day, doesn't watch television, doesn't use the internet. He said this himself in an interview. And I, I in fact, said, I wrote in, I think it was 2015, that I was worried that his attempts to become a sort of free-range pope living in the Domus Sancta Marta instead of the Apostolic Palace and to sort of have his own informal network of people that he would gather information and advice from was going to, in fact, make him a prisoner, much more so than living in the Apostolic Palace and doing the normal day job of a pope would ever have done. And I think that that's really what we're seeing has happened. Is he going to change his ways? I don't know. But I'm, I'm encouraged at the way Cardinal O'Malley publicly broke ranks over his misstep in speaking about Bishop Barros and basically publicly chided the Pope. And the Pope seems to have responded well to that. That broke through. I hope it's the beginning of a larger breakthrough. And that he'll see that, for example, not all doctors of the law, for example, Archbishop Shakluna, are his enemy. And that, in fact, they can be very essential to getting the reforms that he's trying to set up in motion. And that structure and process and law, things that have been held to be slightly dirty words so far in this certificate, are actually his best weapons in fighting corruption and bad practice and poor advice. Well, of course, we should mention Cardinal O'Malley because it is the most extraordinary thing that this cardinal from Boston who is responsible overall for the protection of minors in the church, should publicly rebuke the Pope. Now, this could be taken as evidence, it's almost certainly as evidence of his personal bravery, but it also tells us, I think, that his star is rising. Rising with who? Commentators who say to me, O'Malley is the man to watch. Well, a lot of people were saying that at the time of the last conclave, in fact, Cardinal O'Malley is a pretty safe pair of hands when it comes to hot-button issues in the church. He's Archbishop of Boston for a reason. 
which is, you know, it was a diocese in flames when he arrived, and he's turned it around pretty dramatically. He has the ear of Pope Francis. He's one of the few American bishops or cardinals that has a pre-existing personal relationship with the Pope. I don't know how far his star will rise in the future, but I certainly hope that the Pope will perhaps listen a little more closely to him and widen his circle of advisors, because it, for sure he can't learn everything he needs to know in the cafeteria no, at the Domus Sancta Marta. He can't go on like this. And meanwhile, Ed Condon, thank you very much, and I'm off to the bookies. Thank you very much. <laughs>